following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Again, good morning, church. I love the simplicity of that. We need to do this more often. I thank you for singing, for lifting your voices with us. Um, as I said, this is a bit of a unique service. If you weren't here at the beginning, um, what we like to do is the, the weekend between Christmas and New Year's, we try to go even more simple than we normally go, right? And so if, as you notice, for example, there's no screen. We were kind of all paper instead of digital, and there's something about it. I got I to be honest. Maybe I'm an old soul Oh, I love it. It was, it was a lot of fun. So thank you for singing with us um, this morning. Um, by the way, I know that uh, the kiddos being in here, I know that I am able to keep the attention of any child, regardless their age. Not really. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. We, we love them moving. Don't, parents, don't be, don't be uptight. Um, but if you do need a, a space where your kids can express themselves, um, right outside this door, we set up a room for you parents, and, and you'll be able to hear things going on, but then also not worry uh, that your child is expressing himself or herself too much. So if, if that serves you well, please take advantage of it. Um, I hope that you had a great Christmas. Uh, another year, another Christmas has come and gone. I feel super old. Uh, this morning is, is a special morning for another reason. So last week, we finished our time in the book of Joel. It was a, it was a fantastic time, and, and we look ahead And next week, we start into the book of Genesis. And I I guess more accurately, I should say, we will be starting back into the book of Genesis. So we made it up until um, chapter 18, and we are going to pick up right where we left off in the book of Genesis. And if we, um, we're going to be spending the majority of our year next year, actually, in the book of Genesis, because if we do this right, we'll be able to finish the book of Genesis this next year. So we're looking forward to that. So, we, so last week we finished Joel. This next week we start into Genesis. And that leaves me with this special week where I get to pick what I want to talk about. No, I get to, to pick the text that we're going to be in. And, and it's my joy to pick. So I am, um, we're going to spend our time in Galatians this morning. And um, if you have your Bibles, grab them, and, and you can open with me to Galatians, specifically Galatians chapter 2. And while you're getting there, I don't know if you've ever read this book. Uh, this is Screwtape Letters uh, by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read Screwtape Letters, it is a worthy read. You would enjoy it. Um, if you have, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but the premise of this book is, is just brilliant. Uh, it was written in 1942 by, by C.S. Lewis. And what this basically is, this book, is, is a fictional book made up of fictional letters, a collection of letters uh, written by a senior demon named Screwtape. All right? 
And this senior demon named Screwtape is writing letters to his nephew demon, all right, younger, less experienced nephew demon named Wormwood. So the more experienced demon is coaching the less experienced nephew demon. He's kind of mentoring him and coaching him. He's, uh, the younger demon is, is, is referred to as a junior tempter, right? So you, you see this mentoring and coaching going on. And their target is this man that we know as the patient, the patient. So what's going on here is Wormwood is looking for the best way to tempt and to destroy the patient. And Screwtape, this more experienced tempter, is giving advice. So what we get in this book is, is just a behind-the-scenes look at what attacks could look like in the Christian life. It's, it's a really intriguing book. Um, constantly in this book, though, Wormwood, the less experienced demon, wants to go big, wants to get patient to fall into some huge sin, crazy sin, right? And constantly in this letter, in this book, Screwtape then is going, wait, 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 slow down. We got to be more subtle. We got to introduce sin in a way that is more subtle so it'll destroy his life without him knowing it. Constantly, you see the schemes of the enemy kind of playing out in very subtle ways. And I want to give you an example of this. This comes from the 25th letter that Screwtape writes, Wormwood. It says, the real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have their individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. If we want, that is, if men become Christians at all, what we want is to keep them in the state of mind that I will call Christianity and. You know, Christianity, he's going to give some examples that might seem dated. We'll come back to it. Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and psychological research, Christianity and vegetarianism. I love that he includes that in this. It was big back then. Christianity and spelling reform. Yep, it was a thing. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. We must work on their horror of the same old thing. Now that, <laughs> that'll preach. And Lewis is right, because from the earliest church to the modern church, there has been a, there is this subtle temptation. There's this subtle temptation as Christians to, not that we want to disregard the gospel altogether, not that we want to just throw it all out, that's not it. But there's this subtle temptation to add to it. To think that it's not quite enough or to think that we can kind of graduate from it and, and make it Christianity and. Christianity and is dangerous. It is a dangerous trap. 
It's a, it's a tool of the enemy. And it's, again, not a new trap at all. Not, this is not only a trap that we see today, which we're going to talk about that. It's not only a trap that we see in 1950s when C.S. Lewis wrote this. But it's a trap that the early church faced as well. And in the text that we're going to get to look at today, uh, we're going to see that. Um, Galatians, if you have your Bibles open to there, Galatians is a really interesting book. It is a straight-up rebuke. By the way, uh, shameless plug here, we, we have several studies going on as a church, and several of our men just finished with a, an incredible study on the book of Galatians. And if you're not in one of these... You need to be. You need to be. Um, but Tom Seltzer leads this group, and it is fantastic. If you want any information about that or any of our groups, please let us know by just letting us know on a card or grabbing me or any of our leaders. We'd love to connect you. But as we were walking through the book of Galatians, as we were kind of walking slowly through this, um, I... I begin to notice something again and again, and that is that there is nothing new under the sun. The temptations that they were facing were so similar to the temptations and the struggles that we are facing. There is this temptation, again, toward Christianity and. So Paul writes Galatians to a group of churches in the area of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. He writes this letter, and you will see right off the bat, our man Paul is fired up. He is fired up. This is a straight, straight rebuke. I mean, if you look at the beginning, he says, hi, I'm Paul, right? Apostle, servant, how are you doing, right? And then right out of that, I mean, so quickly, verse 6, I am astonished at how quickly you've deserted the grace of Christ, I mean, it is zero to 60, like that. He just drops into this, this, this rebuke. And the primary, Paul's primary concern here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being distorted. It's being distorted. He says, look, this is a different gospel than what I preach to you. This is a different gospel, and it is misleading people. And Paul says, this must stop. Only he says it far more harshly than I am saying it right now. And if you don't believe me, just take a look at Galatians 5.12, and I'll leave it at that. Now, let me give you a bit of context here. All of you are looking at Galatians 5.12. I love it. I love it. Um, let me get you a bit of context here for us. Uh, and we'll get a feel for Paul's concern. In this letter, there are two types of people. There are the Jew and the Gentile. And here's what was happening here. For those believers who were Jewish, who came out of Judaism, their temptation, there was this pull to distort the gospel message to distort it with ideas and with ways of thinking that were common to their previous life in Judaism. So they were taking what they knew, taking what they once practiced and thought, and they were bringing it into the church and into the gospel and adding and kind of distorting it a little bit. And then what they were doing is they were imposing that distortion 
onto the Gentiles. And like screw tape, it was subtle. It wasn't that they were rejecting Christ. No. Uh, they were just adding stuff to him. And Paul was perfectly and uniquely, uh, uniquely qualified to address this. We, we see in, in, cha- in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul starts to just tell them how qualified he was to speak to this. He talks about how he, in his former life, persecuted the church of God, violently tried to destroy it. He advanced, he was in, advanced in Judaism Beyond many of my own age among my people, in verse 14, so extremely zealous, right? In other words, Paul says, hey guys, I was all in. I was all in. I know where you come from because I was there. You've heard of my former life. You've heard how extremely zealous I was. And Paul here is speaking from a place that he was familiar with. So we're going to be digging in to verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2 this morning. So as you scan through, you're going to see that our text comes right after this unique little portion where Paul even opposes and addresses Peter. He confronts him and calls him out. Although Peter and the apostles preached that the Gentiles... Um, did not have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. When he was pressured by the Jews, Peter caved and withdrew. He acted hypocritically, and he was forcing the Gentiles to conform to the Jewish law. And Paul would not have any of it. And so you see this rebuke that that he gives um, Cephas. He says, I opposed him face to face. Because he stood condemned, verse 12, uh, for before certain men, he uh, come, came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the, the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically right along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray, hear that, led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw, when Paul says, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? This was a matter of importance and urgency because this was a gospel issue. So Paul addresses it boldly and with clarity. And that gets us to our text. This was a gospel issue. And as we read our text, many scholars believe that the second half of chapter 2 is kind of the crux of the whole letter. So since I only got to choose one, I chose right at the heart, all right? So chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. (laughs) Real quickly, um, anyone here Jewish? Okay, so for the, I think all of us, that would put us in the second camp then, Gentiles. Uh, We would be Gentiles. Are you offended by this statement? You shouldn't be because Gentile sinners, if the shoe fits, right? Um, But from this statement, you get the sense of the superiority 
that was prevalent in this church. Uh, you get this sense um, that there are two kind of people, right? Like we said, there are the Gentiles, they're the strangers, the foreigners to the things of God. They're the people outside of the covenant people. They are the, the quote-unquote sinners, right? And then you have the Jews, the chosen people, receivers of the law, the covenant, and the promise. And so Paul's statement here, as we're going to see, is loaded with, uh, with irony and sarcasm. But then he goes into verse 16. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's a repetitive statement. We repeat what's important. And and through Paul's repetition, we get a sense of what truly is important. Here's what's happening here. Jews were imposing the law on Gentile sinners. They were adding the law. They were adding Jewish customs to the gospel. And here Paul says, we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. We are not justified by the law, the works of the law, keeping the law. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, really quickly, uh, he uses this term justify a lot. And so just really quickly, this term justification, simple definition, is to declare someone to be in the right. It's a courtroom term. It's a legal term. It's, it's a person standing before a judge, and that judge declaring him, looking at him, declaring him to be just innocent and, and free of, to be in the right. Now, in a Christian theological sense, this is the process where a holy God intervenes, steps in to change the broken state of the relationship between humanity and himself. And hear me, the law could never do this. The law could never earn this kind of standing before God. Instead, justification is that moment when our God, by his grace, applies the work of Jesus Christ to us so that we are declared righteous and justified before him through Christ. We had no way and no hope to reach a not guilty verdict Yet we were declared not guilty by our righteous judge based on the work of Christ. The the scene in the Gospels where God the Father says to, to Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Remember that? Justification, church, because of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, justification is when that is said about you. This is my son, This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. That is justification. And Paul says we don't get that because any works of the law. We get that through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now understand with me, see with me here. The works of the law are good things. They're good things. They're they're not bad things. They're they're the Ten Commandments. They're they're the law that God gave his people through Moses. They were given to the people of God so that the people of God would know how to live and thrive and flourish. They were good things. 
They were given so that the people of God would be a people set apart. They were given so that the people would flourish. They were given to show us our need for a savior. The, the, the law is not a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing. But here's what happened here. It was given to point people to God, and now it was being used as the stumbling block for people to get to God. What was given to point people to our God was now being used as the stumbling block for people to get to him. And the thing that was given to point people to God, in other words, was an obstacle. It was an obstacle. If you want to know Jesus, then do this. If you want to know Jesus, then believe in him and do that. Become that. And again, not bad things, good things, but just not gospel things. So Paul in this verse is saying, a person does not earn for himself a right standing before God through keeping the law because none of us can do it. A person is given right standing before God through faith alone, through the completed work of Jesus Christ alone. That is how we hear, well done. That is how. So I want us to talk this morning about the real problem. The, the heart of all of this, the heart of the Galatian problem. At the heart of this problem, it's the same problem that we struggle with today. Again, it's the gospel and problem. Now, I would, looking in this room, I would make a wild assumption that most of you do not struggle with um, too much with the Old Testament law. I, I would make a guess that not many of you have been kept up at night wondering about the ceremonial laws. Um, I, would, I would guess that you haven't wondered much this week about the sacrificial system, um, about the implication of all those 600 plus laws, um, about circumcision as a means of acceptance before God, I would guess that these are not the things that keep us, church, up at night. I would guess. If you are here, by the way, and they do keep you up at night, then please take the letter of Galatians very literally. It was written for you. It was written directly about this. But for most of us, that is not who we are. It is not our struggle For the rest of us, though, I don't want us to miss the heart of the real problem here. I don't want us to miss the heart of what the churches in Galatia were doing. They were adding to the gospel. They were adding an an. What Paul says back in in verse 7 of chapter 1, they were distorting the gospel. They were distorting it. They were, it was justification through the gospel and something else, gospel and law. And that and problem is not a unique problem to them. Let me just remind you of what Screwtape warned us when he says, what we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of mind that I will call Christianity and. He is saying, if Christians are to be made powerless, let them grow 
Let them not be content with the gospel itself. Let them think that they need to add a subtle difference, add an and. And for us, again, it's not probably Old Testament law. It's probably also not the things that Lewis puts in his book. I mean, spelling reform might be your thing, but it probably isn't. It might not be that. It might not be what Lewis puts forth, but we can easily come up with some more current and relevant ends. Again, these are not bad things. In fact, like the law, many of them are good. But the gospel is distorted when it's combined with anything else. The gospel is distorted when it is combined with anything else. For the Galatians, it was gospel and the law. Maybe for us, gospel and self-improvement. Gospel and church attendance, the gospel and personal growth, the gospel and healthy living, the gospel and working out, the gospel and clean eating, the gospel and Bible studies, the gospel and memorizing scripture, parents in the room, the gospel and public school, the gospel and private school, the gospel and homeschool. The gospel and adoption, the gospel and foster care, the gospel and feeding the poor, the gospel and environmentalism, the gospel and generosity, the gospel and political involvement, the gospel and Republican, the gospel and Democrat, the gospel and American, the gospel and church, the gospel is distorted when Anything else is added to it. Things that should become an act of worship before God can subtly become an act of validation before him. Let me give you a quick example. So feeding the poor was one of them. How can anyone here think feeding the poor is a bad thing? Oh my goodness. Hopefully not. Feeding the poor is a great thing. God commanded us to do it. He says in Matthew 25, like, I was hungry and you gave me food. We should feed the poor. It is an act of obedience that we feed the poor, that we care for those. It's because of God's love for us that we should have love for them, right? We, we believe this. We stand, we love others and we care for the poor and the needy and it's an act of worship. Praise God for that. It's a good thing. But what should be an act of worship before God can so easily change into an act of validation before God. Let me give you an example of how this happens. If we aren't careful, feeding the poor can become our base reason. Our our base and our reason that we should believe that God would accept us. That, That God would... Let's be honest, accept us over the rest. If we aren't careful, social justice, which is a good thing, it's a good thing, can turn into social gospel, which is a bad thing, a really bad thing. 
Social justice is us worshiping our God through obedience and showing his love to the the least of these. That's social justice. Praise God for that. Social gospel, however, is our attempt to validate ourselves through another means with a subtle end before our holy God. Social gospel is is a great example of a gospel end. All of these ands, by the way, I want you to think about this with me. Make me think of Matthew 7.22. So in Matthew 7.22, Jesus is talking about the end. He says, on that day, it's a terrifying text, by the way, for any of us as a pastor. It's a terrifying text. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? You remember that? Do you notice what they did? Do you notice what they did here? What were they basing their acceptance before God on? They, the things they did for him, not based on what Christ did for them, but notice it wasn't, Lord, Lord, you died on our behalf. Notice it wasn't. You, we followed you because you set us free, because you transformed us. We are free in you through the blood. It wasn't any of that. It was, Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works? Did we not do many great things? Did we not feed the poor? Go to church, care for the widow and the orphan. All of a sudden, our quote-unquote, ands come to the surface. And I, I just want us to ask ourselves, what are our ands this morning? What good thing have you subtly made a gospel thing? What good thing have you affixed to your gospel? Um, New Year's, it's right around the corner, and New Year's is my favorite time of the year. It really is. For any goal kind of person, New Year's is where it's at, right? I love New Year's, so please don't hear me wrong. But many of us enter the new year with so many ideas of the good things that we want to add to our lives, ideas of the bad things that we want to cut from our lives. We enter the new year with all of these things, and, and I love New Year's for this reason. But what I have found is that New Year's has a unique way of bringing out those quote-unquote ands that kind of float to the surface. The good things that we are tempted to add as a way of validation before our God. That if this time next year I've done X, Y, and Z, then I will be validated before him. I will be better before him in his eyes. And without meaning to, we can add these these ands to our lives and feel as though we brought something to the table. None of us want to come empty-handed. Because everyone else is empty-handed. Why don't I come with something? We are tempted to want to feel the need to bring something to this table instead of coming empty-handed. We want something, if we're honest, that sets us a little above the other people. And this is what was happening. Think of it. Think of this. So 
here in Galatians, at least we have the law that sets us a little above those Gentile sinners. And God says, no, you are all sinners, both Jew and Gentile, on equal footing before me, no matter what you seek to add to the equation. I once believed that as a pastor, that the dominant, predominant thing that I'd be doing in ministry is to be proclaiming the gospel message to, quote unquote, sinners. But I have come to realize that the main thing that I do seems to be is to proclaim the gospel to, quote unquote, good people. And here in Galatians, this is who Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with the good people who thought themselves to be better than the common sinners. And so here's my question for us to consider today. What things in your mind make you believe that you're better? What things in your mind make you believe that you're more acceptable in your God's eyes than other people? Because that is an excellent question to reveal the ends that you have in your life. Again, the things coming to your mind are probably not bad things. They're probably really good things. But they're most likely not gospel things. They are ends. Church, the gospel is enough, and any and that we put on it is simply a distortion. Acceptance with our God is based on trust in Christ alone. It is through nothing else. It is not helped by anything else. In fact, just a few verses, just a few verses down in Galatians 2.21, uh, Paul says, I, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if the gospel is true, then the cross of Christ is everything. But if we're able to add to the cross with anything else, then Paul says the cross means nothing. Church, for those who are not yet a follower of Jesus, nothing else will satisfy you. Nothing else will save you, no matter how healthy you are, how good you are to the environment, how many people you clothe or feed, no matter how many children you foster or adopt, and no matter how many verses you have memorized. Apart from Jesus Christ, you will not find satisfaction or salvation that you are seeking. I urge you to come to Jesus this morning, realize his love for you, and his work on the cross is enough to both satisfy and to save you. And if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, I just encourage you to examine your life. What have you added to the gospel? Where are you finding your identity? How are you attempting to validate yourself before God? And what gospel are you preaching to your neighbors? What are your ands, and how can you turn those ands back into an act of worship and not an act of validation? I'll remind you again of Screwtape's words. What we want, says Screwtape, what we want, what the enemy wants, here it is, if, Christians, if men become Christians at all, what we want is to keep them in 
the state of mind I call Christianity and. So I want to close with Paul's words in Galatians. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's pray together. Lord, we are, we are yours. We started this morning by reading that we are the sheep of your pasture. We belong to you and we are grateful that you have intervened. Lord, as we look at our lives, no matter who we are, what brings us into this room, what we know to be the truth, as we look at our lives, we know that only you can satisfy and save us. And so here in this moment, Lord, uh, for, for any person who has never responded to the gospel, Lord, I just pray that you show how truly good you are. Would you work through your spirit in our, in our lives? Would you show us that all of the ways and all of the things that we are giving ourselves to, all of the identities that we are trying to cling to, will leave us empty in the end, but that you have promised that as we come to you, as we place our identity in you, that we will be satisfied and saved for all eternity. So Lord, would you continue to do a work in us? And Lord, for, for all of us who may have responded to the gospel before and as we examine our lives, I, I pray that you help us. We have blind spots, Lord. I have blind spots. Would you help us, would you help me to see the ways that you want to grow us. That we would see the ways that you are looking to grow in us and grow through us. Would you bring conviction? Would you show us the, the things that we are clinging to this morning instead of your gospel and our identity in Christ? Lord, would you do a work on our hearts as we come into 2019? Would you do a work on our hearts and would you show us first and foremost that we are yours, the sheep of your pasture, and you are our God. We are your people. That is who we are, and that is enough. Would you show us that? Would you help us in our faith? In Jesus' name. Thank you.